Good to see everybody. We are looking today at Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 to 75. And um, we have been looking at the theme of the kingdom throughout the book of Matthew. And as we look and think about that, that theme, it's going to be very present in our text today, but I want to prepare you before we read a few verses by asking you this question. What is your worst nightmare? Maybe you're living it right now. I don't have to, you don't have to think very hard immediately. Usually there's something that comes to mind. You've heard the question, what are you afraid of in the middle of the night? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What is your worst nightmare? And um, could it be that this nightmare, should it become true, would be something that would cause you, maybe it's causing you right now, to doubt the sovereignty and the goodness of God? David Stewart prayed, thanking God for his sovereignty. We believe that God is all-powerful. The Bible teaches that God is all-good. Many people doubt that both can be true at the same time. How can God be all-powerful and all-good and allow the things that have happened in my life or allow the things happening in our city or our world? How can He be, uh, be all-good and sovereign and not help me out of my situation, deliver me the way I'm praying for it right now? These things cause us to doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of God. But here Christ teaches us that He is the King over all things and that there is nothing in your life, nothing in this world that He has not experienced Himself, and yet He remains the King. Let's begin reading in, in, um, in chapter 26. I'll read a few verses, and because it's 45 verses, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, skip around a bit. We'll get through all the verses, but we may go in a different order. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Just a comment before we go beyond that, that, uh, that line. This is, remember, after the Lord's Supper, after the Passover meal, and it's the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, and uh, he says they sing a hymn. Now, what we, we know what those hymns are. Those are the hymns of ascent at the, uh, toward the end of uh, the book of Psalms, and one of those hymns that could have been sung, that may have been sung was from Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Can you imagine Jesus singing that hymn right then, knowing what was going to happen to him that day and still able to say, this is the day the sovereign Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, though I am going, literally going through hell in the next several hours. Puts in perspective our suffering and also the way we want to sing in worship. We sing the deepest and hardest truths. 
uh, regardless of how we feel. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not die, deny you. And all the disciples said the very same thing. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest. Later on, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far, the reading of God's Word, we'll read the rest of it eventually. Let's pause and pray before we proceed. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come down on us this day and convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt that your Word is true because you are true. Convince us that Jesus Christ is the good Lord. He's the good, all-powerful king. And he's the all-powerful king over no matter what we are experiencing. Oh, let us stand up in your kingdom today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you remember, maybe you still watch the game show Family Feud. And uh, the idea was that Steve Harvey would ask the contestants, you know, <clears throat> Uh, how to guess how, how uh, 100 people would answer a certain question. 2012, he asked this question. When someone mentions the king, quote unquote, the king, when someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Survey says, two people said, the Burger King. Three people said Martin Luther King Jr. Seven people said God or Jesus. Eighty-one people said Elvis Presley. 
You know, the Bible says, Peter says, 1 Peter 3, set apart in your heart Christ as Lord so that you might be ready at any moment to give an answer for the hope that is within you. What does it mean to set apart in your heart Christ as Lord? It means to view everything, every situation, to live through all of life with this constant filter, this this, these, these spectacles on your eyes, constantly interpreting everything that you experience, everything that you go through in these terms, Jesus Christ is king. When you watch the news, when you read the news, when you experience what you do with your neighbors, what you experience when you, what you do in the doctor's office, when you get the bad news, when you uh, experience your frustrations on the roads of Memphis, you're looking at setting apart Christ as Lord is to say Jesus is king. No matter what appears on the outside, Jesus is king. Now, our text tells us that Jesus is king over four areas. He's king over injustice. He's king over betrayal. He's king over the devil or demonic authority, and he's king over our betrayals. He's king over all these things. Let me remind you of something that you may remember from the Westminster Shorter Catechism if you're a Presbyterian lifer. Number 26 is how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ has three offices. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. And then the catechism asks, how does Christ fulfill these offices. If you want a copy of that catechism, by the way, it's in the back of our hymnal on sale in the bookstore. Wonderful devotional book, but in the back of it is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism. Number 26 is, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? It's in modern English, but I, don't, I didn't learn the modern English. The, the, the old English is, Christ executeth the office of a king by his once taking dominion of us and by his ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. Christ is a king by taking dominion of us. We were not his. He conquered us. He, he took hold of our wills. He changed our hearts. He brought us to himself. And he rules and defends us. And he is restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. That is Christ as king. He has been king. He is king. He always will be king. And in our text, we find that he is king over some of the areas of life where we are tempted to doubt his kingship. First is injustice. And I'm going to work from the end of the passage back and uh, these are verses I have not read yet, so look with me at verses 47 and following. Jesus went on <clears throat> after that supper, and he said, uh, it went to the garden, you know, went for, for, from the garden, and uh, as he arose from prayer, while he was still speaking, verse 47, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man and I want you to seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up, 
laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we know this from other passages, it was Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the priest, cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so at that hour? Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But all this was taking place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The first area in which Jesus demonstrates his kingship is over injustice. Jesus was taken first before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, which was governed by very strict rules all of which were flouted, were disobeyed, ignored, trampled on in this instance. Except one. They did bring two witnesses. They were liars, of course, and they contradicted each other, but that was the only point at which they adhered to the strict rules governing the Sanhedrin. Those rules included these. All criminal cases were to be tried during the daytime. This one was at night. They could not be conducted during the Passover season. Of course, we've just read about the the Passover. Third, no decision was valid unless the Sanhedrin met in its proper place, the hall of hewn stone in the temple precincts. This was in the high priest's home. This wasn't in a courthouse. And only a not guilty verdict could be issued in the same day. A guilty verdict uh, could not be issued until night had elapsed so that everybody would have time to cool down and think about what they had heard and make sure their feelings were not, were not clouding their judgment. But this guilty verdict was issued in a matter of hours. The question it may be, you know, why is, if, if this is injustice and Jesus knows the rules, why didn't he say something? 
The Bible tells us not only here, but other places, Jesus remained silent. Three times the Bible tells us he remained silent in three different situations. And here, in the midst of this gross injustice, Jesus remains silent until the end. He didn't answer any of these other uh, questions, which could have put away the trial. Conceivably, he could have been released if he had pointed out, you're meeting illegally. We're in, a, we're in an illegal place. I can announce this to the world and you'll be, you're, you, you might be impeached. Jesus didn't say anything. Until Caiaphas asked him point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And Jesus answered, yes. That was a sure way. They didn't have to have a trial. When Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that's really all they needed. They didn't have to have a trial. He said it there. No evidence had to be brought forth. He was committing blasphemy in their eyes because they denied that he was the Christ. Of course, he was telling the truth. But why did Jesus answer as he did? Why didn't he protest the injustice that was being done to him? Why did he only answer the question that he knew would be sure to condemn him and take him to the cross? Because that was his mission. His mission wasn't to get law, to get loose. His mission was not to defend his rights. His mission was to die for us. He waited for the question that would be sure to condemn him. The king of justice endured injustice to bring about justification for you and me. Now, it's appropriate for us to stand up for justice. It is proper for us to point out where there is injustice. It's proper for us to stand up for others who are being treated unfairly. But I do fear at times that we confuse justice with our personal preferences. And there's a lot of standing up for our personal preferences in the name of personal rights. And it demands humility for us to say, what did Jesus do in my place? I am, there's, I am, I am enraged at this, maybe it is really, truly injustice you're experiencing, and you were enraged, and then you turned your rage to God. You said, if you really loved me, you would get me out of this fix. You don't know what I'm going through. And Jesus can always say, I know what you're going through, and more. I have intentionally endured it that I might deliver you from the greater enemies. Jesus demonstrates himself to be the king over injustice by enduring injustice in order to rise above it and defeat injustice once and for all. The great uh, pastor Frederick Leahy said, by a single word, Christ might have freed himself from his enemies, but our silent priest continued majestically to his death. Oh, blessed silence that lay at the heart of our redemption. Second thing I want you to see in this text is that he is the king over betrayal. That's verses 47 to 56 we read earlier. Did this catch Jesus off guard? 
this, this turncoat in his midst, this one who shared and dipped bread with him. No, Jesus had predicted that this is what Judas would do. And Jesus uh, persistently reached out to Judas, giving him opportunity to repent. Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? There was one more opportunity. He pointed it out at the supper. Judas could have turned. He pointed it out there in the garden. Judas, do you really know what you're doing? So obvious is Jesus' pursuit or the opportunities that Jesus gives to Judas to repent. I remember taking a, a, a tour of Israel, one of the tours of Israel a number of years ago, and we had a, a Jewish tour guide, and uh, he had alluded to the fact that he thought that Jesus and Judas were conspirators. And I took him off to the side and I said, why do you, why do you think that Jesus conspired with Judas uh, to betray him, and, and his argument was that he wanted to die a martyr to, to, because he was a megalomaniac and he wanted to, he was just trying to foster this cult. And so I said, why do you, why do you, what evidence do you have from the New Testament that Jesus and Judas were conspirators? And he said, the number of times Jesus engages Judas and talks about his, his, uh, his betrayal, there can be no other reason that he would bring that subject up with him unless he was conspiring with him. I said, unless he's trying to turn him in a different direction. Jesus pursued him. Although Jesus remained sovereign, Jesus, uh, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. There was that opportunity for Judas to repent. Where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man relate, I have no idea. Neither do you nor does the Bible explain it. We just know that both are true. Judas had opportunity to repent. Jesus was sovereign and knew Judas, what Judas was going to do. And Jesus remained confident in his father's plan and in his sovereignty to the point that he didn't run away from his betrayer. Do what you came to do. Willingly surrendered himself to the authorities knowing that it was going to take him to his death. Now, probably, looking around at the number of uh, gray hairs matching me here today, uh, you have, in, by this time in your life, experienced betrayal. Somebody, at least you think they have, betrayed you, probably have. Nothing that hurts worse. And, there are t and, and, and being betrayed, especially by someone who was close to you, someone with whom you shared meals like Jesus did with Judas, someone you trusted to be betrayed by that person. That's something that can, can turn you to rage, to bitterness, even against God. How can you be good and sovereign, allow this friend of mine, this wife, this child, this person I invested in to betray me? How could you let that happen? And though you may not ever get the full answer in this life, you at least hear this answer from Jesus. I know how you feel. I willingly submitted to betrayal. But I did it so that I might rise as king over it and ultimately defeat all betrayal, all traitorousness. Jesus is king over that area in your life as well.
and he's working all things together for good, whether you see it now or not. Third area I want you to see he's sovereign over is the devil, the devil himself. He is king over the devil. Now, you may say that... um, you know, we're, too, we're, we're more sophisticated than this. We live in a scientific age, and there, we don't believe so much in the activity of demons. Or you might be of such a sophisticated uh, theological opinion that you say those kinds of things don't happen anymore now that the Bible is complete. If you don't know what that theology is, you'll live a perfectly healthy and happy life without knowing what it is. But uh, some people deny it. But you can't deny it. You can't deny that the devil is alive and well, and he roams to and fro seeking whom he may devour, that he continues to oppress us, he continues to tempt, he continues to stir up dissension to try to get a foothold in churches, to try to deceive and destroy people made in the image of God. The devil, you you, you can't deny the devil and still accept the cosmology of the Bible. The devil is active. We can be overly concerned about the devil Or we can deny the devil, and the devil is equally happy with both, C.S. Lewis used to say, because the devil is a theological terrorist. He will do whatever allows him to wreak the most havoc and most damage. He is able to exercise an outsized fear to his abilities because he's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere present. But the devil is alive and well, angry at what Christ is doing, hates the church, hates all made in the image of God. I found it more and more necessary to say from the pulpit, beware of of your curiosity about demonism or the devil because more and more I experience people who in their curiosity roam through the internet or experiment with other with uh, games and so forth, and find themselves in the realm of darkness and trapped, young and old. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, whenever I come to the devil in a text, I, I, I give that warning, don't play with it. <clears throat> Jesus in you is more powerful than, than uh, the, the one in you is more powerful than he who is in the world, yes, but he is a terrorist. And if he gets an opportunity and you give him an open door, he will wreak terror in your life, even if you're a Christian. He can't possess you. He can't take you to hell. But he can wreak terror in your life. Stay away from it. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that from the pulpit. And I sometimes feel kind of silly because I look at people's faces and they, and, uh, they think he's, there he goes again, that quasi-charismatic or whatever he is. <clears throat> but I did and that following week, a senior pastor from a very prominent church in our city that you, wouldn't, uh, you would certainly never uh, accuse of being charismatic called and said, George, you may think I'm crazy, but I think there's somebody demon-possessed in my, in my church. We cannot help him. The devil is alive and well. The counsel I gave was... I didn't have to teach him anything. He's, he's, a, he's a very well-trained theologian. I said, you got, we've got to remember what we know to be true. Jesus is king. His word is more powerful. 
Prayer is more powerful. We have divinely powerful weapons. You don't need to throw any kind of water on them, even Memphis water. You don't have no magic water, no incantation. We pray and we administer Scripture in the context of a loving congregation. That's what they're doing. That's the, and, and uh, no immediate healing, but progress. Our weapons are more powerful. Well, you say, now I'm looking at this passage, 36 to 46, where in the world is the devil? Well, I'm going to give you my interpretation, and you're free to disagree with my interpretation. People do. But here's the way I get to the devil in this passage. And it's not, uh, it's not an insight original to me. It's from a great theologian named J. Oliver Buswell. He used to be the president of Wheaton College. He was the first professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. and <clears throat> He's a great man. And... Um, I'm good friends with his ancestors. But J. Oliver Buswell had this insight. He said he, he always wrestled over this passage, and he said <clears throat> uh, that when, when he looked at the occurrence of the cup, the cup in the Gospels doesn't refer to, to death, but rather to the bitter experiences that come in life in following Christ, the bitter experiences that come from the hand of the devil in following Christ. So he said, if that is what Jesus is praying, if Jesus is not praying, and it's hard to square this idea that Jesus is getting this close to the cross, which he said from all of eternity, he was eager to pursue. I delight to do your will, O God. I come to do your will. I come to, prevent, to, to present a sacrifice to you. I am in agony until I fulfill the baptism I was called to undergo, meaning crucifixion. I have to get to Jerusalem. Why would he be so intent from all eternity past to get to the garden and say, please don't let me die. Please don't let me die. Just doesn't fit. But if cup means, please deliver me from this trial that I am experiencing at the hand of the devil right now, then what could that possibly be? And Dr. Buswell said, I think we get an insight from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. You men have studied Hebrews. And uh, here, let me remind you what it says there. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, he was begging God with loud cries and tears to be delivered from death, and God heard him. Well, God obviously didn't deliver him from his death. He went on to die in the garden and in, in, on the cross. So how was he delivered? How was his prayer answered? Luke 22 tells us, at that moment, at that prayer, an angel came and helped him. Dr. Buswell said what he sees happening in that passage is that the devil was trying to kill him before he got to the cross. The devil was trying to prevent him 
from accomplishing his mission, which was to die on the cursed tree in the place of us for our sins and to achieve our justification. And Jesus was pleading to the Father, don't let me die here. I will fail the mission. I've got to get to the cross. And God sent an angel to help him. Remember, he's sweating drops of blood. He is near death. Seems to me, not absolute, but it seems to me that that's more in keeping with the heart of Jesus that we read everywhere. That Jesus is so intent on purchasing, accomplishing your and my salvation that he begged God not to let him die an easier death in the garden. But please preserve me that I might die the death of hell on the cross for my people. Rabbi Duncan, the famous Hebrew professor, used to say that the very first person he wanted to meet when he got to heaven was the angel who helped his Lord. Because without that angel, Jesus could have been killed in the garden and not died for us. King over our demonic oppression, Jesus has endured it. If not in that garden, he has certainly endured it. He endured it throughout his Life. There's no need to fear the evil one, even his oppression, but to stand up to him in the armor of King Jesus. Final thing I want you to see in this passage is that he is king over our own betrayals. We read about Peter earlier in verses 30 and following. Let me conclude, read the last part of the passage about uh, Jesus, uh, Peter's fulfilling what Jesus told him would happen. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I swear blankety-blank by God, I am not blankety-blank the follower of Jesus, the rooster crows. Luke adds, Jesus looked right at him. Peter said, I will, I will never deny you. I will go to death for you. A servant girl pushes the button and he denies three times. Can you imagine the grief of Peter? Can you imagine how he would have felt, especially when the Lord looked right at him? Peter, you traitor. Given all that I've done for you, and you've turned your back on me, I see it. Peter surely must have thought all hope was lost for him. How could 
God ever love him? How could Jesus ever have any purpose for him? Maybe you feel the same way. Each of us has a besetting sin. Each of us has what uh, Maxie Dunham calls a hound of hell, something that's nipping at our heels constantly, a temptation, a memory from the past, shame, Maybe even this morning, you've succumbed to that besetting sin, or you have said something or done something, and you think, how I have surely sinned beyond the pale now. I have lost my salvation. There's no way, or there's at least no way Jesus would ever use me ever again. As one desperate man told me once, uh, a, a significant leader in this church said, I feel that I'm permanently on the sideline. I'm forever canceled out of God's plan. You feel that way? Peter had every reason to feel that way. And yet Jesus knew Peter was going to do what he did. Jesus said, you will deny me three times. I know it's going to happen. And then in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34 and verse 61, we have this this edition, where Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but after you have turned back, after you have repented, I want you to go and tell your brothers to meet me in Galilee. This is before Jesus died. Jesus not only knew Peter was going to fail, he knew that that failure was going to shape Peter into a man of greater humility, and one through whom the gospel could come more clearly. And he said, I'm going to use you to meet me in Galilee. And there in Galilee, I'm going to give you the great commission, what we read about in, in Matthew 28. I'm going to meet you in Galilee, and I'm going to tell you we've got a mission to do. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is sovereign over your failures. He's sovereign over your sin. He never tempts us to sin. The Bible makes that clear. He doesn't make us sin. But not only does He know the way you're going to sin, He has ordained the purposes that can be, that can be accomplished by your humiliation in that sin and the repentance that turns you back to Christ. That's not just a, a Robertson theory. That comes also from our confession of faith as it, as it gathers up all of the biblical data on this topic and puts it in a beautiful chapter. Uh, in chapter 5, paragraph 5, it says this, In the fullness of His wisdom, righteousness, and grace, God often allows His own children to be tempted in various ways and for a time to pursue the corruption of their own hearts. You hear that? God, to accomplish His purposes, allows us to be tempted and allows us to fall and to pursue for a time the corruption of our own hearts. Go ahead, do it, do it, do it. But God does this to chastise them for their previous sins or to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts so that they may be humbled 
In addition to various other just and holy results, believers are thereby raised to a closer and more constant dependence on God for their support and are also made more alert in detecting and resisting opportunities to sin. You know, anytime I encounter someone who is very self-righteous and uh, someone who is, um, you know, suspicious that uh, maybe we're preaching too much grace or you need, to, you need to stick more to the law, you need to tell these people to straighten up or you need to be harder on these people or maybe you're not hard enough on yourself, I take a deep breath because I know what's coming in their life eventually. The Lord allowing them to discover their own corruption and their own fall in order to humble them and to bring them back to himself with the new perspective of, oh, Lord Jesus, I cannot, I cannot live the Christian life. I cannot do anything unless you enable me. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil to pray it desperately, never to think that's beyond me. How could they do that? Boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. God loves you so much. God loves us so much. He at times allows us to fall into our own sin. Never knock rocks him from his throne. He never thinks, I never thought you could do that. I had all my hope in you. You were on my first team, and there you fail. He never thinks that way. He's like the parent who lets somebody... Let's a kid touch something that's, that's too hot so that they'll learn to be careful in the future and depend on their parents' advice. Well, Jesus has demonstrated himself to be king by submitting to every conceivable nightmare in our place and rising in victory over it. Given the, account, the events in our city in the last uh, couple of days or in our country, maybe in your life, we can be tempted to think that Jesus is no more a king than Elvis Presley. But he is. And I want to ask your indulgence to read to you a poem that uh, a friend of mine in my previous church wrote and gave me as uh, when I announced that I was being called here. I was sent here with great love from that congregation. And this man, a gifted, a gifted in so many ways, he's an IT engineer and musician and so forth, and <clears throat> he's also a poet. I shared this poem with uh, a number of people, and, and um, Steve Nash was, fell in love with it to the point that he had it engraved at the entrance of Advance Memphis. I want to read it to you. See all of the cars, it's called the Memphis King. See all of the cars out of time, their meters paid up eternally with a single dime, perfectly preserved with crisp cream and seafoam green fender lines. Stop, look closer. See the patina of rust on the undercarriage. These cars are out of time. Bang! Hear the gunshot, see the screams stretching out through time. Look up and see the line of the gunman to the place where King was shot. No ray of justice burst forth that inglorious day, only the sloppy arc of a tumbling bullet meant for King's heart. 
The trigger squeeze at the top of the heart-pounding moment was out of time, made the bullet fly untrue. It strayed high, but King was through. It struck the neck of that colored target, a flawed, courageous preacher who stuck his neck out too far. Joseph of Arimathea, alive and well in Memphis on April 4th, 1968, tried to stop the blood that flowed, cradled King's body as the heartbeat slowed. The king with a dream was hidden from our sight that night at 7.05 p.m. And with vengeful delight, with anguish and fright, the city bellowed, suspended in this moment, still living these seconds when king was shot. He wasn't the only king in that place. Have you traveled to the land of grace, seen the opulent, sprawling estate, the gold belt buckles? I wonder, are they plated? The king was worth a mint. What percent of the city's wealth is held in this shrine? How much can money, fame, and wealth get you in time? How much can be mine? More than you can play with in this life or the next, but what about his name? What about the king's fame? Elvis has left the building, but I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee, and see the palace of the king who perished alone in the upper room. Hearts broke when those kingdoms came to an end. Did the music die all over again when the two kings died in Memphis? No. No, the music still plays over Memphis. Every night the city streams the signal. There is another king who plays quietly. The song of his dream over Memphis, while lesser bands played and lesser men waved axe handles, while we tried to entertain ourselves and sell each other short, the true king has been at play. There are whispers that he is near, on the move through Memphis. Some have seen him in these days. There is no question, will he appear in mighty power and undeniably near? Only when. Indeed, two millennia of soon is a dream differed, but already rest assured he is among you, binding up broken places, filling up empty spaces of racially, spatially segregated parishes, upturning faces that have been downcast for generations. He is establishing his bases, preparing an assault of white hot resolve which the gates of hell cannot halt. He rides against the forces of darkness. He marks us for the battle, marks us by name, and calls us to join his swelling ranks to give thanks for the strength to bind, to fill, to find, to heal, to teach, and to, teach and to preach the grace he has supplied. Quietly is the rumor spoken of a once dead king unbound, unbroken, who consumed his killer's steel in his own flesh, requiring only three days' rest before retaking his throne. Fresh and ready for the fight, day and night, the song repeats, a beggar king walks the streets of Memphis with anonymity. Have you seen the king without fame? Do you know the king without name? That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? How can they miss you in a crowd, the people around you smiling out loud with our feet six feet off the ground? When you walk with the king through Graceland, you will walk the hidden places where city folk fear to turn their faces. You will harvest secret fields, ripe without sowing. You, a fool, will be wise who was once unknowing. The hungry sheep he feeds, the barren earth he seeds, rough places plain, mourning, joyous refrain, orphans. Sons and daughters, with a new and glorious name, what was lost will be found, and your feet, your feet, they won't touch the ground. Jesus is king. 
over all of the world, over Memphis, over you too. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, when the world seems so out of control, when we're overwhelmed with the issues in our own life and the, the issues of our city and our world, we're tempted to take things in our own, our own hands like Peter or even like Judas. But help us to remember today to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts that we might give an answer for the hope that is within us. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the King. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.